for the Apostle Paul and the first Christians. The pre- in the presence of, of Christ, they recognized the enfleshment of the law that God called Israel to lead. And so we have Paul in this chapter of the book of Philippians writing to that earlier church. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him even in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection, not that I have already obtained this, or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and sustaining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. The United Methodist Book of Worship states that our worship, in both its unity and in its diversity, is an encounter with the living God. In our book of discipline, it speaks of scripture in the same way. That through scripture, the living Christ meets us in the experience of redeeming grace. And that's good for theologians to put into print. But what on earth does it mean to meet God as worship or experience the living Christ. Whatever it does mean, I'm kind of hopeful it isn't the same thing as what Israel met on that mountain. (laughs) If so, as Annie Dillard once said, that our ushers should be passing out crash helmets instead of bulletins. The people of Israel have finally arrived at the holy mountain. And God is there, God's voice cracking like thunder, the sound of the trumpet blasts so loud that it could wake the dead with each blast. The mountain smoking like a kiln and shaking the round around it like an earthquake. That is the context for the Ten Commandments that we are so familiar with. Less often do we place it quite in that pyrotechnic display. 
In areas of our country, I'm told that folks used to put up uh, cardboard pop-ups of the Ten Commandments on their front lawn, kind of like those vote for whomever things, you know, you put on the front lawn. Cardboard. As a kind of, it was a kind of statement about God and country that still exists in some of our courthouses. And some of those same folks would end up mowing around that cardboard on Sunday morning. The placement of the Ten Commandments in the original story is far more significant than a cardboard cutout on your front lawn or an argument about the place of the Ten Commandments in our civic displays. God spoke in the text. And the air threatened to ignite like hydrogen on the face of the sun. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And when all of that was over, Israel said, no more of that. You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us again or we will surely die. And sure enough, God doesn't. This is the last moment in Scripture that God will make an appearance as dramatic as this. From here on out, God's presence is folded and hidden in human lives, in prophets and teachers, in acts of service. And grace. But in Exodus, it was an encounter with the living God. Ten utterances, ten commandments, and that was quite enough. There's nothing much like it in biblical literature, or I'm told in the literature of other early religions. Namely, because it wasn't an appearance before a single person, it was all the people of Israel. The lame, the dying, the hungry, the women, the children, the elderly, as well as all of the mighty warriors and leaders. It was the whole people of Israel to whom God spoke to, all before God. It is a momentous moment in our text. But, I am somewhat thankful that doesn't happen to us every Sunday. (laughs) What might it mean, though, for us, as our tradition states that worship, what might it mean to meet God, if that is at the heart of what our work is to do here as a church? Now, I'm by no means, (laughs) by no means, a prophet or a seer, but in light of the deep tradition and my own journey in faith, I have a few thoughts about where we encounter God and what that might look like as you look back over the course of your life and think there might be moments where we have met God. First, and this one is a little tough, encounter to be encounter God is to find yourself decentered. 
And by this, an encounter with God moves yourself out of the center of the world. To use a bit of common vernacular. Moments in which we encounter God are moments in which we realized it's not all about us. Sometimes I think it might be important for us as a church in our time to reflect on the fact it's really not about you, the reason we're here. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not use God's name wrongfully. You shall not create idols. You will remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. There is a sacred otherness at the center of creation and even beyond it, which commands us not to fill with other things. We call these idols. Pastor Melinda gets that text next Sunday. (laughs) We are idol makers setting up in the center of that, that Spot in creation that God reserves for the holy. We put all kinds of things there. We put success. We put wealth. We put big churches. We put perfection. We create all kinds of... We put the house with two, two cars and two and a half children. All those things we put in that space. And then there's moments where we encounter God... And we are, all that is pushed out of the center. That's what it might mean to encounter God. Meet the living Christ in the pages of Scripture. And you can look over that in a moment of your own life where you might have felt that. And name it, if you like. It is the last moment that God will speak like this, thankfully. But there's a moment later in the Old Testament where one of my, it's one of my favorite passages where Elijah, Elijah's pretty filled with himself. And all it takes is one ill word from the, the tyrant of the day and he's a mess. And so he seeks refuge, wanting to die. He goes off to the holy mountain. And so we're again on the holy mountain and there's a huge earthquake and God's not in the earthquake, and a huge fire, and God's not in the fire, and a mighty wind, and God's not in the mighty wind. But where is God? In the still, small voice. I had a moment like that when I was a child, and I still reflect on it. I was visiting, we were visiting my uncle in Colorado Springs. I think it's the first time I'd been up on a mountain. I remember walking 10 or 15 feet away, and even growing up in the middle of nowhere... That was yet the first time I had really heard silence. A silence of the deep and quiet earth. It has stuck with me. It was a decentering experience. Many of you have encountered these in different ways, going out in the wilderness, in the, in the midst of the beauty of creation. We suddenly become as if we are very small. That's God's way in wonder and awe of making room in our hearts for everything else. 
after we have been moved out of the center of our sacred life and reserved God's presence there, we get the second set of commands. After God has made a space in the world for the holy, God directs our gaze. If we are to be God's community, you have your choice. You can. Israel had a choice. There's an old midrash, though, that says God was holding the whole mountain over them. <laughs> but they had a choice. If you choose to accept that God turns the people of God towards the other, the one different from ourselves, the neighbor, each and every human being. It's something entirely new was created here in this moment. In Egypt, one person held great power in the face of a nation of slaves. At the foot of the tin of the, of the mighty mountain in God's presence, all people are equal in the eyes of God's justice and mercy. The entire community is standing at the foot of the mountain in covenant. Not just the elite. Not just those with power. Biblical ethics proceed from the thought that once God creates space in the world for the holy, God turns us towards the other and insists we honor the dignity of difference. You shall honor your elders, even if you're young. You shall not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not testify against your neighbor falsely. You shall not covet. To meet God is to have our gaze turned then towards our neighbor and recognize that is the place of the holy in the world now. At Mount Sinai, if we are reading the text, we meet a God at work in the world who is completely different from us, a stranger. After this moment, God's presence will be hidden in the world, in the outcast, the alien, the sojourner. In all those places, God will insist you look to find the holy. So you will have looked in the course of your lives, hopefully in our worship and perhaps even in scripture and in your life experience, for moments you have been decentered from moments where you have had your, your experience of the holy in life and of human life expanded into those that are different from yourselves. Those two things go hand in hand. We can't have room for the other if we've put ourselves up in the center, can we? The third thing, that if, after those two are in place, You can point to moments 
where we have met God when you find yourself changed. It's perhaps the only thing that can change us is an encounter with God. That is also an irritating fact. This has been a nation in mourning this week as we have attempted to figure out, get our minds around what happened in Las Vegas, the tragedy of those human lives, how infinitely valuable each one is, the senselessness of the act itself. And in the many sort of articles about it, I picked up one, David Brooks's editorial in the New York Times, and I, I don't know if I'm persuaded by the whole thing, but one thing in it that caught me just right square in the nose was this. He was reflecting to another's author, another author who made this statement that When you present people with evidence that goes against their deeply held beliefs, the evidence doesn't sway them. My guess is he's talking about gun control here. Instead, but it works for religion too, let me tell you. Instead, they invent... So when presented to the evidence, most folks don't change their minds. Instead... They invent more reasons that their prior position is actually correct. And the smarter the person is, the greater his or her ability to rationalize and reinterpret the information to fit their beliefs. I found both joy and fear in that statement. One was it helped me make sense of the reality that folks don't seem rational. The other, and this is a bit jaded as a religious professional, but I'll state it on faith, that I think the only way human beings change is if they encounter God or whatever it is that you label with the word God. And those meeting places contain moments where our pre-existing views are pushed out of the center. God opens our hearts in compassion for the other. And if we choose to cooperate, we change. That's not something you or an I can do. And that makes our work more difficult. All those folks that put up the Ten Commandments in there or argue over the place in the court or argue over the place of God in the civic government. It's a little judgmental, but my feeling is that they are, and this spirit is in us all of wanting to actually change our neighbor. We can't do that. And it makes our work more pressing and also more challenging. We are called simply to bear witness to the fact we have met God and that it is possible to change. That there is a higher power. The fruits of the Spirit are readily recognizable. The Apostle Paul will write to the church in Galatia. You can point to it We can bear witness 
to the faith of this life-changing God by ourselves. The fruits of the Spirit are these, love, joy, hope, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And no church that there's nowhere in the apostles' fruits of the Spirit for cranky perfectionism or corrective behavior. Let me note that carefully. It's one way we can actually defeat our witness. I was in my uh, choirs for singing rehearsal, and it's always the penultimate rehearsals where the choir directors get cranky and each have their own way of pulling this out. Uh, and our new director was caught himself. He says he's always always tries to give a plus minus plus, meaning encouragement. Correction, encouragement. If we are to be the fruits of God's life-changing spirit in the world that moves our arrogance out of the middle, turns our heart towards the dignity of all human beings, you know what our witness needs to look like. Plus, 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 plus. That's hard to do, isn't it? We are called to go into the world to bear witness to grace. To point to that life-changing God that makes room in every life for a sacred space. Honors the dignity of difference in all human beings. And is grace in our lives. Those three things. Look over the course of your life. There is where your footsteps have crossed the paths of our Lord. And to God alone will be the glory if we are this church now and forevermore. Amen.